This morning we're going to be looking at First Chronicles. Uh, so if you want, you can start turning there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some available right by the door. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep it. If uh, you have one, you just didn't bring it today for whatever reason, uh, just drop it back there when you're done. Before we get into looking at the Word, I wanted to just uh, just pray a little bit. You know, I, uh, a lot of times, you know, when I'm when I'm driving or whatever, I'll I'll just pray. I said in the first service, I'll just close my eyes and and just uh, you know. But anyway, you know, I've just been praying, and, and this morning I got out of the car, and I was about to take the long walk across that parking lot, and uh, I started to pray for some folks that were sick, and I realized, man, I've been praying for a lot of people that are sick, and their, their mom is sick, or their dad is sick, or something like that, and so it, it was just kind of on my heart that I think as a body, that right now, why don't we just go before the Lord, let's just pray, we'll lift up some of these requests and concerns uh, that the Lord might hear. Does that sound good? All right, let's, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just begin grateful that we can come to you in prayer. Father, that uh, we're not just out here sort of on our own having to deal with it, Lord, but that because of the work of your Son, you've granted us access into the throne room. And there, Lord, as we come before you, we can lay down our burdens, those things that are heavy upon our hearts, those people that we care about, we love, We can present them there to you. Lord, we know that you care. You love them more than we do. And so, Father, we want to come and we want to entrust this group of people to you. Father, we we want to lift up Craig Sargent, having lost his sister to cancer this week. Father, I ask that you would come alongside of him, minister to his heart. Father, just restore his soul. Father, use him in the lives of other family members as he's just able to speak into their lives, the same things that you're speaking into his. Father, we pray for Diane, uh, Sergeant, and her dad. Uh, just She describes it on death's door earlier, Lord, in the week. Internal bleeding, unable to find it, losing pine after pine of blood, and uh, just dad looking so bad. And yet, uh, the way in which you intervened, you used the doctors, Lord, you brought about a healing, and now he's out of the ICU and a regular room, but we pray you will continue to bring about his healing. Father, we lift up Suzanne Allen, and we're so grateful, Lord, that her mom was able to be moved to a care facility near here now, that she can uh, regularly get over to see mom, to care for her. We think of Suzanne's Aunt Carol, and uh, the way in which her eyesight is just so rapidly deteriorating, Lord, we ask that you would uh, just bring about a healing. Lord, use Suzanne in their lives. Father, we think of Robin Barber's mom and dad. Mom with breast cancer and going in for surgery in the coming weeks. Dad with the congestive heart failure. Uh, both of them living down in Florida and Robin's uh, inability to be there as she would like. Lord, I pray for Robin. I pray for Kevin. Lord, that you would strengthen them as they seek to care and minister for mom from a distance and dad and, and when they go down. Father, we think of uh, Tareen. Hatchell having had surgery, Lord, a six to eight week recovery. Lord, we thank you. We're thankful that the surgery, though, went very long, that it, it did what it needed to do. And now we just pray for the healing process. Lord, we pray for Tareen, that you would just help her to sit still, uh, to be mended. We pray for Desmond as he cares for his wife and for their daughter. Father, we ask that during this time of quietness that you would speak into her life. Use this, Lord 
God, uh, as a real growing point. What we think of Carl Johnston about that surgery on Tuesday. But we're thankful for the care that is available. But we, we know that any surgery brings apprehension and fear. And so we pray that you would comfort his heart and that you would cause a full healing to come about as a result. When we think of Charlie's daughter, certainly Charlie's own, own medical issues that we've prayed about before, but his daughter, Lord, with this possible cancer and the colitis, Lord. Father, we ask for her healing, not just physically, but Lord, spiritually, that you would do a work within her heart. Lord, we lift up the Simon family to you. LJ breaking his arm this week. Uh, Len cutting uh, a bunch of his finger off uh, at work. Father, we thank you that uh, you protected them from more serious injury here, and we do pray you would bring them and heal them. I lift up Judy Howsworth and her bronchitis. It's been lingering for months and months. Lord, please help the doctors to figure out what's going on. We pray for all of those in our church that uh, are right on the edge of the flu. We certainly think of our community and the nation with the flu epidemic and people literally losing their lives. We ask for your protection and for healing. We think of Eleanor Goldstein, our friend, 100 years old. Lord, would you watch over her and protect her? Continue to minister to her heart. Just love, Lord. She's only known the Lord a little bit, 28 years. And uh, Father, uh, thank you for saving her. Watch over her, minister to her. We pray for Bertha. We're growing older. Lord, not having the energy that she's had to care for Frank and others, Lord, would you please strengthen her in a fresh way? Would you bless her and Frank, protect their health? Father, there's so many things that probably I've forgotten. Lord, you know, present them to you. Lord, we pray that as a body you give us the ability to minister well to one another. Lord, that uh, when one mourns, we all mourn. When one rejoices, we all rejoice, Lord, that you would honestly do a changing work within our hearts, that it's uh, your burden becomes my burden, and your joy becomes mine, Lord. So, Father, uh, continue to knit the hearts of this congregation together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed uh, some of the Belize folks, the, the, the tan folks that are running around. Uh, the Belize mission team returned uh, very early on Saturday morning, so some of them are here today running around. Um, they're going to share with us next week some of the things that God has done in their hearts, and, uh, and uh, uh, Kevin Barber will be teaching the Word uh, next week, so we're looking forward to hearing uh, that. Today our goal is to finish the book of First Chronicles. So uh, again, if you haven't done so, turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles. We started mid-July, July 15th or so, we started the book of First Chronicles. Essentially, we've been looking at it every single week uh, since then, and we're just literally going verse by verse through the book, chapter by chapter, hearing what God has to say to us. And today, um, if the Lord allows, uh, we will, uh, chances are he will allow, because we could stay here all afternoon. No one's coming in after, you know, so we'll get it done. Um, but we are going to wrap up the book here today. The book of First Chronicles, as way, by way of reminder, it was a book written to the exiles, the Jewish exiles following the Babylonian captivity, and it was sort of to explain, this is what it's going to be like when you go back into the land. We've been following this book, and primarily the chief, and we've said it, maybe you guys can call it out if you recall, uh, the, the chief character, the key character of the book is, is King David. You know, we've been looking at his life. Well, David is coming now to the end of his life, and he's fortunate. 
because most of us, we won't know the end of our days. You know, something will happen, and we'll get sick, and we'll die. Something will happen, we'll get hit by a bus or something like that. And we won't know the end of our days. We won't have the opportunity to be able to pull people together and say, look, I want you to listen to me. This is the last speech I'm ever going to give, and these are the most important words I can think of. We won't have that luxury. David had that luxury, and he gathered all of the leaders. Remember 28.1, he said, it says that he assembled at Jerusalem all of the f- officials of Israel, and it goes and it lists all those particular people there. And he also gathers one other key guy, his son, Solomon. Because Solomon is going to go on to become the next king of the nation. And so all of these leaders, and they're up on the stage, I guess you might say, is David and Solomon. And they're in front of all of these people there. And David charges the leaders with a couple of things. Most significant that we looked at here is he says, Look, I had it in my heart to build a temple, but God wouldn't allow me to do. Two, you need to do that. This is my charge to you. When I'm off the scene, see that the temple gets done. And then he goes on, and and we've read this before, of how he gathered up all the things here uh, to make sure that the temple could be done. Also, notice in verse 5 and 6, his second charge to them was that Solomon would be the next king. Anybody could have been the next king. David had lots of other sons that could have been there. Solomon was a young man. He was only 20 years of age. Chances are there were other people that were more qualified. They were more experienced, they were more capable, and they were certainly more willing. Pick me, I'd rather be the king, or whatever. But God had picked Solomon. And so David makes sure, as he's in the presence of all of these leaders, that he says to them, you see this guy here? This is who God picked. And you're to honor him like you honored me. We're going to consecrate him, we're going to bless him, and you guys are going to follow him. You're going to see that the temple gets built, and we're going to move forward. These are kind of David's last words. Well, as we move on to, that was all last week. As we move on to verse 9 of chapter 28, David now turns his attention from all of the officials, and he kind of looks to Solomon. So I I sort of picture, you know, David, he's got his mic, and he's out there speaking to all these people, and now he sort of turns sideways, and he says, and Solomon. Clearly, everybody's watching, but he's speaking specifically to this fellow here, his son, Solomon. And notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, Now you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now to follow. Uh, Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. You are to be strong and do it. Now the first thing, there's four different things that I want to draw your attention from these two verses. The first thing that I notice about this here is where he says to him, uh, Solomon, know the God of your father. Now David is his father. You know, so he's speaking in third person. He says, know the God of your father. Now we know that David wasn't perfect. We know that David sinned. Some of his sins are given to us in the scripture. And we think, man, they're the big sins. You know, how could this guy be a man of God? He murdered somebody. He committed adultery. He uh, committed the sin of rebellion and taking this census despite the warnings of all those other people that cost thousands of people their lives. This guy is a terrible guy. How can we say uh, you know, that he's a man after God's own heart or whatever? Well, each of those uh, blunders, they're sins. We'll call them that, sure. But they were momentary in David's life. These weren't the patterns of his life. David was a man at his core who was after God's own heart. Remember when David was selected, King Saul was the king. But when David, when it was determined that this shepherd boy was going to be the next king, 
it was said of David, it said, The Lord has sought out after a man, after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that knew God. And his concern was that his son would have that same type of relationship that he had. You know, that got me thinking that if I were in my closing days, if any of us were in our closing days, we're about to die, and we gathered our children around us, would we be able to say to our kids, I want you to have a relationship with God just like I had a relationship with God? Or would we have to qualify our conversation? Would we have to say to them, man, I want the best for you. I want you to have a great relationship with God. And unfortunately, I didn't live that way. Unfortunately, my life was one of compromise. Unfortunately, I didn't walk with, my walk with God, it was dry and it was stagnant. And I don't want that for you. What a sad thing to be able to say. But to be able to turn to your kids and say, look, I've sought after the Lord. I've loved the Lord. He's been faithful. And he's shown himself to me. And I want you to have that as well. Again, how sad would it be if we said, you know what, I lived my life focusing on the wrong things. And here I am at the end of my life and I can't go back and I can't change it, but you can. Still, a great message, but how sad to have to say that. How sad to have to say to our kids, you know what, I walked with God in a way that was just sort of good enough. It qualified me to be a Christian, but it certainly didn't thrive and it's certainly not something I want from you. So David here, he's saying, know the God of your father. Know the God that I knew. You become a man after God's own heart as well. Certainly sobering words for us to consider what our kids are observing in our lives, what other people are observing in our lives. Are we setting a pattern that they're going to want to follow, that we're going to want them to follow? So he charges Solomon in the presence of all the witnesses. He says, no God. I find it fascinating that the first charge is no God. It's not, look man, whatever it takes, get the building built. It's not, make sure the military is strong. It's not make sure the nation thrives. All those are important things. But the first charge is that he would know God. Again, he says, know the God of your father. And then secondly, he goes on from there. You can see in verse 9, he says, know the God of your father and serve him. Service follows relationship. And Greg, you said this before. You know, didn't we do this like two weeks ago and five weeks ago and eight weeks ago? Yes, we've done it, but we're going to repeat it again. It's that important for us to remind ourselves again and again. Any service that we do for God must come forth out of the intimacy of relationship that we enjoy. Yeah, we can serve. We can get the task done. The bulletins can get out. The chairs can get set up. The kids could get taught in Sunday school. The, the message can be preached from the pulpit. We can do it, but it won't have a lasting effect. Unless it comes from our relationship with God, what's going to happen, our service will dry up. We'll begin to serve sort of out of compulsion. Instead of from a heart of gratitude, we just find, man, we drag ourselves to go and do the service, and I don't even want to be here, and we grumble through the whole process. We begin to minister to people sort of begrudgingly. You know, what am I getting out of this? Sort of begins to resonate more and more loudly within our hearts and within our minds here. And instead of just the service coming from the overflow of the abundance of what God has poured into us, we have to manufacture it. And so I would suggest, as I've suggested before, if you're serving God in any capacity... And, and honestly, if, if you're bearing the name of Christ, I'm a Christian, you know, you tell people I'm a Christian, whether or not you're doing any official service, you're serving the Lord in those instances there. And in our service, if we're serving Him in any way, it must come forth from our relationship. You know, I find it interesting, when you look at uh, the Gospels, you know, there's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Well, if you look at them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're what we call the synoptic Gospels. They essentially are from, it seems, the exact same perspective. If you read those three Gospels, what you realize is if it's told in one of the books, it's probably going to be told in one of the others, sometimes in all three of them. And they're very, very similar, uh, those three. But then when you get to the book of John, it's a Gospel. It's the good news message of Jesus Christ there. But you notice this is, this is quite a bit different, it seems. Not contradictory, just different stories here, different conclusions that are drawn from some of those stories here. And John's Gospel is not considered one of those synoptic Gospels. Those first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written anywhere from the first five to about 20, 25 years after Jesus' life. The book of John was written some 30, 40 years after Jesus' life. And John, the author, John the Apostle, he was, one of the, he was the remaining uh, of those original apostles there. And here he is somewhere around 80, 85 A.D., coming to the end of his life, and then he writes this gospel. And I find that very interesting. It reminds me a little bit of David. Because here, you know, there was other gospels already written. They were accomplishing the purpose. But there was something about it where he said, you know what, I think I need to put down in writing what I observed, what I witnessed. And he writes it. And so it's interesting to look at the Gospel of John and consider what does it that John places emphasis on? Because that is probably an indicator of where the church was sort of drifting away. And if you look at the, the book of John, there's 21 chapters in the book of John, starting in John chapter 13 to the end. So it's at nine chapters or so. That's almost half of the Gospel half of the book, it concentrates on the last week of Jesus' life. He takes half of the book to focus his attention on one week of Jesus' 33 or so years here on the earth. Because that was a significant area that seemed to be neglected in the early church period with the Gnostics and others that were coming on the scene. And so he teaches there uh, these, this last week of Jesus' life. And starting in John chapter 13... John records a discourse that Jesus had with his disciples. This is where you have the Last Supper. This is where they go out to the Mount of Olives, you know, all that sort of stuff that you might be familiar with. And there in John 13 through 17, and if you look at John 13 through 17, you're looking at Jesus' last words to his disciples, much like David here to Solomon and the nation of Israel. And I think it's telling what is it that Jesus wanted to convey. What did he want to get across in his last words? And as you look through John 13 through 17, I think you could say there were three main things that Jesus wanted to convey. Number one is found in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus very clearly states that he alone is the way to eternal life. You know the words where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody can go to heaven unless he goes through me. That's a message he wanted to convey. And John makes sure that's put in there because the early church was forgetting it. John chapter 14, verse 16, the second message I think that Jesus has in his parting words to his disciples is he reminds them that though he were going away, was going away, he was not going to leave them as orphans. That they were going to be sent another, paracletus, one who comes alongside. The Greek tense of the word is another just like something else, another just like Jesus. I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says to them there in John 14, I'll ask the Father who'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So that's the second thing he wanted to convey, that our walk must be dependent upon the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit, or we'll dry up. And then finally, he says in John chapter 15, I think this is the third and sort of the final thing here, and then he moves into a prayer for, the, um, for us. John 17 is sort of the high priestly prayer of Christ for you and I as his followers. 
But there in John chapter 15, verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Valuable words, closing words of the Lord Jesus. Same message that David gave to Solomon. You must know the Lord. Any service that we seek to do for the King of Kings, it has to come out of our relationship with God. How sad it is that we can become so busy serving God that we no longer have a time to walk with God anymore. And you know, we go through the motions, things are getting done, they're being accomplished, but there's no relationship with Him. Inevitably what occurs is our service will dry up. Relationship first, then service. Now, the third point here, so we saw so far, he says, know the God of your Father, know God. And he says, serve God. And then finally, he tells us, not finally, but thirdly, he tells us uh, how you are to serve God. Notice in verses 9 and 10, he says, and you are to serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. David instructs Solomon that out of the overflow of his relationship with God, that he is to serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, both heart and mind. You know, there's sort of spectrums of the Christian walk, you know, that you could observe, you could look at. Maybe you have friends, you know, that are on this side of the spectrum or on that side of the spectrum there. But there's spectrums of the Christian walk. And there are some that's all heart. You know, there's a lot of fire, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot going on here. But it seems maybe as if, you know, I don't know what's going on there. It seems like they check their brain at the door. There's no mind, it's just heart. And then there's another side of the church, if you will, where there's no heart at all. It's great thinking, great mind, but it's almost as if they're thinking God out of the whole equation. And it, and it seems as if the, the choice has been pick one or the other. But I don't think we're to pick one or the other. I think we're to serve God with both our heart and with our mind. That there's a reasonableness to the Scriptures. There's doctrine that we take from it, but there's an intimacy of relationship that we pursue. And the two blend perfectly together here. And he says to Solomon, serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Now, what does it mean to have a whole heart? How can I serve God with half a heart? Again, I don't. I should say again. You weren't here for a service. Whole heart. Uh, King James defines it at, or uses the word a perfect heart. And, and perfect that doesn't mean free from error. Error. It's just the idea of completely committed to something. It's the idea of being undivided. You see, interesting. He has to tell him to have a whole heart because it's possible for us to serve God with a divided heart. And I'm sure there's more than these three, but there's three examples that I found in scriptures where a person's heart is divided in its service unto the Lord. And so they come in, they do a good thing, but they do so with a heart that is not right before God. We see one example of this in the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet, Malachi, as they like to say. Maybe you've read the book. But in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verse 7, it says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? You go present that to your governor when you have to pay your taxes and see, he will, see if he will accept you or show you favor. Now, the storyline here uh, that was going on here, you, the effort that is coming forth is a half-hearted effort. Here are these people, they're about to bring their offering to God. I'm supposed to bring an offering to God, but they didn't really want to. And so they come nonetheless and they do it. And they basically look around and they say, well, you know, give me that thing. I don't want it anyway. I'll give that to God. That'll be my offering. And, and the prophet here, he says, God speaking through the prophet, he said, you try that with your taxes. 
you know, hey, I don't have any cash here, but, you know, I got a, an old playground from the backyard that my kids used to play with 15 years ago. Would that do? No, it won't do. I don't want it. You know, this idea. He said, come to me. He's explaining here. You're coming to me with a half-hearted effort. Essentially, you're saying, look, I need to offer something, but I don't really want to. What's the least that I can do to get by? Half-hearted effort. That's a divided heart. Another example here in Isaiah chapter 29. In Isaiah 29, Isaiah is speaking to these people, and in their case, they had hearts that were cold. They weren't inflamed with a passion for the Lord, but they were cold. They were still doing service, but there was no passion that was going on inside of that heart here. It says in Isaiah 29, these people, they draw near me with their lips. They say all sorts of prayers. They sing all sorts of song, but their hearts are far from me. That would be an example of, of a divided heart. You and I, just like the people of Isaiah's day, Isaiah's day, we could get the job done. We could get the service done. But God's desire is that we have a heart that is inflamed for passion for Him. And that requires that we're seeking after Him. And then finally, another example I found in the Scripture as to this idea of having a divided heart is that there are people in the Scripture that had hard hearts. They were serving. They were doing those things that you have to do. I'm a Christian. i got to get up and i got to do it. But they were doing so with a hard heart. Now, the people I'm speaking of are the Pharisees. We see examples of them in the New Testament. But what we discover about them is that the only reason that they served, the only reason that they prayed, the only reason that they gave gifts or they did anything was to, to make sure that other people saw them doing that. They had hardened hearts. One of the shows, uh, maybe you guys have seen uh, Seinfeld. You know Seinfeld? Anybody here with me? Nobody. Okay, good. And on Seinfeld, there's a fellow there, George. Uh, there's one storyline I recall where George goes into like a pizza shop or whatever, and they have the little bucket there for tips, and George takes out a dollar, and he's going to drop it into the bucket for tips. But just as he's dropping it into the, bu- the bucket, the fellow turns around, and he's not paying attention. So now George has dropped the dollar into the tip bucket, but it did no good because nobody saw that he gave the dollar. The guy doesn't know that he gave the dollar. And so George, as you can imagine, he decides he's going to take it out so that he could put it back in, so the guy could see him putting it in. And of course, as he's trying to take the dollar out, the guy catches him, and he thinks that he's stealing the dollar or something like that. But in the same way that George is going to give the tip only if the guy sees that he's giving the tip, the Pharisees prayed, the Pharisees gave, the Pharisees served, only if other people saw it. Because if other people saw it, then I don't get any credit. I don't get any praise. I don't get any honor. Well, Jesus refers to these people here, and he says, Matthew 6, he tells his disciples, he said, see those guys over there? Don't be like them. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward uh, from your Father who is in heaven. The Pharisees, again and again, we're told that they were a people that had a hard heart. Another example in the scripture of a divided heart. So David's words then is, Solomon, have a whole heart. Be completely committed to the task of knowing God. Serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Now the final thing that I want to draw to your attention from verses 9 and 10. First two verses, we got 60 to do today. Alright, so here we are in the first two verses. But the final part is, it seems as if David is kind of anticipating where Solomon's going to go next. Maybe he read it on his face or whatever. He had just told him, serve him with a whole heart, seek him and you will find him and all these sorts of things. And then he's going to answer, it seems that Solomon might be thinking something like, well, how, can I, how can I know God like you know God? You're the psalmist of Israel. I'm just a kid. I'm 20 years old, I don't know anything. Or it seems that he might be saying, well, you know, what if, I, what if I really seek to pursue God with my life? What if I just don't find him? 
And I remember when I was in college, I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I was a relatively new believer. And some of the older believers, some of the older students, they would talk about, you know, God, God just kind of spoke to me or whatever. Or I heard God say. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, and so I would concentrate, you know, and I'd grit my teeth and squeeze my eyes hard or whatever. Maybe I can somewhere deep in the distance, I can hear the voice of God and, and then I'll be able to hear God too, you know, and just trying to figure all that sort of stuff out. And, and now, you know, here I've been walking with the Lord, you know, a bunch of years or whatever, and, and I can say that I do hear the voice of the Lord. And, and I, I understand kind of what they were saying at that time, but 18 years old, I didn't think that that would ever happen. You know, I would listen and listen and listen and get nothing, I would think. And so maybe Solomon is in sort of this place here where he's thinking, how can I lead these people? I can't even hear from God. Seek him. How do I know I'm going to find him if I seek him? What if I fail? And David, it seems, is anticipating that. Notice what he says in verse 9, a little bit further down in the verse. He says, Solomon, if you seek him, you will find him. The idea is if you come to him in sincerity and you look for him, you will find him. That is a promise not only to Solomon, but to you and I. Unless you think, well, that doesn't carry over to the New Testament or something like that. Remember what the Apostle James said to the people that he was writing to in the book of James. He says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. You see, God's not up in heaven playing like hide-and-seek. You know, Jay uh, and I, we were talking later, he said, you know, if God is playing hide-and-seek, it's sort of like we play hide-and-seek with our little kids. You know, so we go hide but we make all sorts of noise that they'll know where to come and to find us so that the game can end, you know, this sort of thing. You know, and, and there is something to the idea that, you know, the more diligent I am about seeking the Lord, the more likely it is that I will find him and discover things about him. But God's not hiding from us. He's not running and we just got to chase after him and hopefully we'll catch up to him or something. God wants to be known. He sent his son so that he could be known. We could have relationship to him, with him, access to him. And David is telling Solomon, just as the Holy Spirit is speaking to our lives, God can be known. And Solomon, you and I, if we make a relationship with him, the desire of our heart, then we will find relationship with him. Now, as we move on from verse 10, we read these words. It says, Now David, then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule, of the temple, of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the, excuse me, for the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver for each service, the weight of the golden lampstands and their lamps, the weight of gold for each lampstand and its lamp, the weight of silver for a lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lampstand in the service, the weight of gold for each table for the showbread, the silver for the silver tables, pure gold for the forks, the basins and the cups, the weight for the golden bowls and the weight of each, the silver bowls, the weight of each, the altar of incense made of refined gold and its weight, also his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this he, that's God, made clear to me, that's David, in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. 
So David didn't just sort of sit in his room and have some creative session with a group of people where, what should we have there? Well, let's put a room here and let's do this and let's have some golden forks and all this sort of stuff. But this was revealed to him from God. In the exact same way, when Moses decided to put up this tabernacle, uh, this tent in the wilderness that the people would go to worship as they were wandering through the wilderness there, leaving Egypt, in the same way that God revealed to Moses, and it says in Hebrews chapter 8, when Moses was about to erect the tent, God instructed him saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you upon the mountain. God revealed to Moses the structure, what it was going to be like. And he did the same thing here to, with the pattern of the temple. Again, look at verse 19. All this he made clear to me. None of this was to be of human imagination. None of it was to be David's ingenuity or anything like that. But it was all spelled out as God revealed. And the reason, again, is as we said it before, is because God is jealous of his types. That all of these things, all of this, the stuff in the temple and the furniture in the temple and the work that was going on in the temple, all of that was pointing to our high priest, the Lord Jesus. And not only is our high priest, but he's also our lamb, our sacrifice. It was all pointing to that. And so God said, make sure you follow the instructions that I gave you. Again, right down to the plans. Revealed to him from the hand of the Lord. Now, I want to show you a picture here. This is a, there it is. This is a picture in Israel. Now, you can see the lady there. So it's, it's a model. This isn't, not the lady, the, uh, the items that you have there. Um, yeah, she's very far away. Overlooking. Now, this is... Uh, in Israel, it's at the Israel Museum, I think it's called. Very creative name there. Uh, and what they have tried to do is replicate the city of Jerusalem just before its destruction in 70 AD. And so the reason why I'm showing this there is here on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount area. This big structure in the forefront here that you're looking at, that's the Temple Mount area. Now, the center, the thing in the center that you're looking at, the big... A rectangle or square type box that is there, that's the temple. Now one thing you need to know just for our purposes here is uh, the temple mount area, that whole flat area with the big walls around it, that wasn't there in the time of David. It wasn't there in the days of Solomon. It was King Herod during the days of Jesus that flattened that whole area out because what King Herod wanted to do is rebuild the temple, kind of uh, spruce it up if you will, and then also make it an attraction that people from all over the world would want to come to and have the space that they could come and they could gather. So that's why he flattened out sort of this mountainous area and there. Those of us that are going to go to Israel in a couple of weeks, we'll go see that, and then we'll actually go on the Temple Mount itself. So it's, it's quite exciting. I just wanted to rub it in the face of those who couldn't go. Uh, anyway, you have there. But what I want to show you is that middle structure there, that's sort of like a structure within a structure, that was there during the times of Solomon. That's what Solomon would build. That's what we would call... Uh, Solomon's temple. And if you look at it, the, the big structure in the middle, that would be the place where the Holy of Holies was. That's where some of this temple furniture that you're reading about, the table of showbread and the basins and so on, that's inside of that big rectangular building. But then you have all these other buildings that are sort of on the outside. And as we saw at the beginning of verse 10 or 11, it says, it speaks of the temple and its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers. That's all that other stuff that is kind of around there. So anyway, I just wanted to show it to you because sometimes I think if you picture it, it sticks with you a little bit more than if you just quickly read through it there. Uh, looking forward to being there in a couple of weeks. Now, uh, he, David charges Solomon. He says, build it just like I'm telling you to build it. God gave me this. And I picture that David is now taking blueprints, if you will, 
and handing them to Solomon. And so there's Solomon standing up there, freaked out. You know, he's a young man, he's 20 years old, and there's thousands and thousands of people, much more qualified than he is to be the king. And now he, he thank you, he takes, you know, this, these, this blueprint here. I'm saying thank you, you weren't paying attention. I'm saying thank you because he gets the blueprint. He's like, thank you, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where I'm going from here. And there he stands there. And David then says to him, Solomon, be strong and courageous. Perhaps he's looking at Solomon's face and you could tell Solomon is a deer in the headlights and he's just like, oh my gosh. He says, Solomon, be strong, be courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God and with you in all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. He tells him, be strong and courageous. He tells him, you're not going to be in this by yourself. First, at one point you'll see, he says, God's going to be with you through this whole process. But he also says, you're going to have all these skilled people that are going to be willing from their heart to serve as well. It's very, very comforting, I have to tell you. You know, one of the things is, as I remember I told you my life verse as far as pastoring this church is concerned? I shared this with you before. But Solomon will pray, I think it's in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, when he'll say, I don't know where it is, but it doesn't matter. He'll say, give your servant an understanding heart to govern this thy good people. And how often I pray that prayer to myself, whether I use those exact words or not, but as I, I look at the task of pastoring, a couple hundred people or more, and, and think, Lord, who am I? I'm just trying to figure out my walk with you. And now you want me to pastor these other people, lead these other people. Lord, would you give me supernaturally an understanding heart to govern this thy good people? Well, that was Solomon's prayer there. And to know, and, and God kind of has come back and he's ministered to my heart. He's, You're not going to be in this by yourself. And just to see the people that have come alongside with their gifts and their abilities, not just spiritual type gifts and abilities, but people that are just capable in whether it be something like a construction field that they're capable in, if we were building a building, or the people that have the ability with things like computer technology, or I can take care of that, I'll take it off your plate, I'll get it done, and they do so. The people that are leading worship, I love having great worship. But if I was going to be the worship leader, our church would seriously be lacking. You know, And the fact that there are people that are skilled and gifted to be able to come and to do that, it's just confirmation, Lord, you're so good, you're so capable, thank you, that I don't have to freak out and fear that I'm in this by myself. What I also like is, you know, when, when these guys were learning how to be builders, more than likely what happened is dad came, took them aside, look, kid, you're seven, come on. I'm going to teach you how to build a house with rocks or whatever. And so they learned, they refined their craft and all this sort of stuff. When they were learning, none of that was spiritual. It was just simply, you need a skill so that you can get out of our house and you're not living here the rest of your life with mom and I. We want to retire and put a jacuzzi in your bedroom. You know, or something like that. And so they were just teaching him a skill. But the way in which God just took the natural and used it for the supernatural is the exact same thing that God does. And so I would encourage you, what are the gifts, what are the skills, what are the abilities that God has given you? How could you turn around and use that for the advancement of the kingdom of God? So Solomon, you're not going to be alone. He says, be strong. He says, be courageous. He also says to him, don't be dismayed. Now, we, we talked about this a little while ago. To be dismayed is to be paralyzed with fear. It's okay that you're afraid, Solomon, but don't let it paralyze you. Don't let it limit you from doing the work that God has called you to do. There's a work that needs to be done, and God uh, can use you to see that it is done. Don't be dismayed, he tells him here. He also tells him, you know what, even though you're going to have all these people helping you, 
even if they all left, you're still going to have God who's going to be on your side. He's going to be with you. You're not going to be alone in this endeavor. Look at these words. This is verse 20. He says, My God is with you. He will not leave you, and He will not forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. He's not going to leave them. And again, when we consider the task that is before us, we consider the society in which we live, and the increasing direction of the rise, honestly, of evil in our society. You know, you watch the news and you think, this is a messed up world. That someone would go in, not just shoot people, but little children, five, six, seven years old. These folks over in India that did the horrible things they did to that woman and that young man on that bus. Horrible. And you think, what's the matter with this world in which we live in? And you realize we're living in the last days and it is a dark world. And God has called us to present light in that darkness. And sometimes we look at that darkness and we think, what could I possibly do? What could we do? It's overwhelming sometimes for us. And to be reminded that God is with us, that he'll never leave us, and that he'll never forsake us, and that he'll be with us until the work itself is completed. Those are very, very encouraging words. You know, Paul, it seems like he anticipates the same type of mindset. What if God leaves me? What if God forsakes me? Philippians 1.6, he says to the church in Philippi, I am absolutely sure of this. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Again, very, very encouraging words for each of us anytime the task seems too daunting. Well, now we close with the final words of the book. Have I said that like four times today? Um, David now, he had just addressed the congregation. He handed to Solomon the blueprints that I made up for you there, described to you there. And now, in front of all these people, they're clearly watching, he turns his, his attention from Solomon back to the sea of officials of Israel standing before them there. And, and I imagine it's like this, that he's sort of, I'm going to address you guys about this guy. And so he kind of takes him, he puts his little arm around him there. Do you remember uh, on nine, just after 9-11 when George Bush went to New York City at the World Trade Center? There's a picture here, you remember? He grabbed one of the firemen, he had a little bullhorn, and he took the guy around the shoulder, and he addressed the audience there, the, the people that had gathered around him there. Well, I, I sort of think it's pretty similar. So here's David, he's got his arm around Solomon there. David takes the bullhorn uh, that he had back then, and he said to all the assembly, notice starting in verse 1 of chapter 29, he says, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, he's young, and he's inexperienced. You know, and there's Solomon thinking, him young and inexperienced, you know. And the work is great. Um, like, thanks for reminding me. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So, now David talking to the congregation, I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood. Besides that, great quantities of onyx and stones for setting. Antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I've provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. Because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talent, talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? 
here at Calvary, as well as I think a lot of churches, we don't put a lot of emphasis on money and on giving. And part of that is in response to the fact that I think there was a period in the American church in particular where a lot of people abused, a lot of church leaders abused the idea of giving to the church. And rather than giving being an opportunity for people to participate in the work that God was doing, uh, they began to use giving as a way for themselves, the leaders, to get rich. And unfortunately, a lot of people were turned off by that. Now the result of that has been a lot of churches, me in particular, have shied away from talking about it at all for fear that I'd be lumped into that category or something. But in order to be faithful to the Scripture, I think the wise thing for us to do is if the Scripture addresses it, we address it. We don't harp on it, but we teach it like we teach anything in the Scripture here. And here you see an example of the idea of giving. One of the things that I want you to notice here is look at verses 2 and verses 5. Is David doesn't command the people to give, but rather... First, he models the spirit of giving, and then he invites other people to join him. So look at verses 2. It says, I provided for the house of my God. Who then else will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? David was careful not to compel anyone to give. Not making you give or anything like that. David doesn't guilt people into giving. If you really loved God, then you would give to the house of God. You really want this to fit, or something like that. He doesn't want to manipulate anyone to give. Do you want God to bless you? Well, then you've got to give your gift so God will bless you. You know, this sort of, he doesn't manipulate, he doesn't do any of this sort of stuff. He simply models, and then he offers an invitation for the people to join him in what it is that he himself is doing. God loves it when we give cheerfully. And I think we can say God hates it when we give under compulsion or grumbling. Uh, from a spirit of grumbling. 2 Corinthians 9 says, Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that, this model, is the pattern that we seek here at Calvary as it pertains to, to giving and finances and that sort of thing. So the elders and I, the, the board of trustees, it's very important to us, for those of us that oversee financial matters, we never want to manipulate people to give. We never want to compel anyone to give. We're not going to put a pledge form out there that you must give and we'll determine who the leaders of this church are based on anything like that. I don't really look at Sometimes I have to because we're doing the giving statements right now and I have to make sure the spelling is correct and that sort of thing. But for the most part, I don't look at who gives or how much they give. I don't base any decisions based on that fact. And it would be wrong and it would no longer be a spirit-led church if we did do that. And so here as a church, it is our sincere desire, sincere and I, use, I underline the word that everyone that does give to the work of Calvary would do so from their hearts. That they would do so willingly because they love what God is doing and they want to participate in that work. If you look at the, the rest of the passage, notice here the word that is being emphasized. There's an emphasis on the will. Notice. Look at verse 5. It says, Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself to the Lord? Look at verse 6 where it speaks of free will offerings. It says, then the leaders of the Father's houses made their free will offerings. No compulsion. Verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. I'll tell you, as a leader of a, a body of believers, there is a great peace in being able to just leave it in the hands of the Lord. You know, there's a, a phrase that uh, 
uh, we as elders and, and stuff, we've been talking through and, and reminding ourselves, and that's the phrase where God guides, God excuse me, where God guides, God provides. That if God is leading in a particular direction, and if you want to take it from the perspective of the church, I believe that God wants there to be a church in this community like Calvary Chapel. I believe that God has guided us to have this particular work. I believe that God has guided me to leave my job as a school teacher to pastor this body of believers. And thus, I'm confident, since God is guiding, that God will provide. And so we don't have to yell at people or argue. We can just simply invite. You want to be a part of what God is doing? We invite you to be a part of it. So that's my thing on giving. And we'll come back to it probably in another year, and we'll talk about it again. Uh, but here, David modeling this spirit of giving and inviting the people to give. Now, David finishes the book. I know I said that three times already, but he finishes the book with a closing prayer. Chapter 29, verse 10, he says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens... And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. I'm not sure. Do we have that verse? We don't have those verses, do we? 10 and 13? Where's 10 and 13? I didn't put those up there. Um, one of the words in there, that the phrases in there, the, or the verse, it says... Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven is yours. You know, as you read those, it sure sounds a lot like what I remember praying uh, going to Catholic school all my life. And, you know, you get there and you say, you know, our Father which art in heaven, how can I? And then you get to the end. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forevermore. Amen. You know, this sort of thing. There, there's such a similarity. You're, you're reminded of the words. And that got me thinking about Jesus' prayer. You remember when Jesus was with his disciples? It's in Luke chapter 11. Now, his disciples, they were good Jewish kids. They had prayed before and all these sorts of things. But they looked at Jesus, and they said, you know, I thought I knew how to pray, but I don't know how to pray. You know how to pray. And so they said to Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus said, sure, I'll teach you how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Father, our Father, which art in heaven hallowed be thy name. You know, we, we, many of us know it. Unfortunately, I came from a background where um, we said the prayer, but not from the heart. It was something we memorized with our brains. I went to a Catholic school, and, and once a month or so, or once, I don't know, a week, whatever we needed, I guess, that particular month, we had to go to confession. And I think they made a big mistake. They would put confession right before recess, you know. And so you'd go in, and uh, they said, look, you go into the priest, you tell him your sins, he'll tell you what you have to go pray, and then as soon as you're done, you just let yourself out and you go to recess. Well, that was a big mistake. Recess was my favorite class, you know? And so here, I would, I'd go in, I'd tell the guy, you know, what it is that I had done wrong or whatever, and he would say, say, 10 our fathers, bad week, 20 our fathers, whatever it may be. And so then I'd go, and I'd, I was like Crazy Eddie. Remember Crazy Eddie? You know, our father, and you try to say as fast as you possibly can to get it out. And it meant absolutely nothing to me, sadly. But Jesus said to his disciples, and again, these aren't words to be memorized. They were a model. So Jesus says to them, Father, when you talk to God, you call him Father. When you consider the significance of referring to the God that created the universe and you and sustains it and holds it together, you consider the significance of calling him Father. That he's close and not distant. 
you say, hallowed be your name, because you remind yourself that you are altogether distinct. He is altogether distinct and different from anyone else you've ever met. He's holy. He's set apart. You say your kingdom come in my heart, where you rule, where righteousness reigns. You see, it's a model of how we are to pray. And I think we would be wise to pray the Our Father, but not in a rote, memorized fashion, but to slowly take ourselves through it to consider the meaning of each words, to let our heart cry out to God. But anyway, he says that these words to him there, and I wonder if Jesus, because there's so much similarity between David's prayer and Jesus' prayer, his model prayer, what we call the Our Father. Notice a couple of these. Remember in Luke 11, Jesus said he called the Father holy or hallowed. He's holy, he's set apart, he's distinct. Notice what David says in 1 Chronicles 29.11, O Lord, you are exalted as head above all. You're holy, you're distinct, you're different. David, you may recall, in verse 11, he spoke glowingly of God's kingdom. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty and so on. Well, Jesus taught us to develop a heart that would cry out for the kingdom of God. Jesus taught his disciples to look to God for their very sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread, he would say. David declared in his prayer, look at verse 14, that God is the provider of his daily sustenance. All things, he says, come from you. I just think there's such a parallel, such an example. I want... for building you a house for your holy name it comes from your hand anyway and it's all your own I know my God that you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness in the uprightness of my heart I have freely offered there's that idea again all these things and now I have seen your people who are present here also offering freely and joyously to you O Lord the God of Abraham Isaac and Israel our fathers keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts to you. Now in verse 19, David also prays for Solomon. And he says, Father, he says, Grant Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. And then finally, if you look at verse 20, David invites the assembly to essentially say amen. Now, we, we talked about this, but sometimes we, we misunderstand what an amen is for. You know, we think that an amen is like a period at the end of a prayer um, sort of thing, and that's really the only time you use it. But again, the phrase amen, or the term amen, is to be used to say, I agree. And so I would encourage you, when you're praying with other people, you want to be active in that prayer time. Even though they're the ones speaking, you want to be active. You want to be judging their words. You want to be hearing their words so that you can either say, yes, I agree with that, amen, God do that. Or if you can't agree with it, don't throw in an amen just to, well, maybe just to finish the prayer, you might want to, there. But the idea of an amen is to offer your agreement here. And whether you use the word amen or you throw in a a grunt or a fellow I liked on the radio years ago, somebody in his congregation would always say, that's right, you know, this sort of thing. 
You know, that's the same thing. That qualifies. That's an amen. You know, it's this idea of agreeing. And David is inviting the assembly to agree with him. And he says to them, he said, bless the Lord. And then notice it says, bless the Lord your God. And so if the people said, yes, bless him, that's their amen. They agree with the prayer that David just prayed. All the assembly then bless the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed their heads. They paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And then to wrap it up in closing, I said that four times now. Beginning in verse 21, it said, so they, they did all this prayer thing. And then it said the people then, they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And then on the next day, they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs. They also offered drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all of Israel. And they ate and they drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. You know, you might look at this and you might think, well, that must have been a boring couple of days, you know, having to go to church and kind of stand there quietly or whatever. They, they were feasting. They were celebrating. Notice again David's words when he said, who am I and who are my people? You know, that we could be assembled in this particular place. There was an awe of who God was and what God had done. Had done. And they were praising and blessing his name. There was great gladness, it says. It says, it goes on, it says, They made Solomon the son of David king the second time, and they anointed him as prince for the Lord, and Zadok as priest. And so, in the waning days of David's life, there was sort of a co-regency for a while, where both of them were kind of ruling. It was an internship kind of program or whatever. And so uh, Solomon had been anointed previously a few chapters ago. Here they anoint him now a second time. He is the king. It goes on, it says, And then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father, and he prospered. And all Israel obeyed him. All the leaders, the mighty men, also the sons of the king, they all pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all of Israel, and he bestowed on him such royal majesty has not been on any king before him in Israel. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all of Israel. The time that he had reigned over Israel was a total of 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron, and he reigned 33 years in Jerusalem. And then he died. He died at a good old age, full of days, full of riches and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David, from the first until the last, they are written in the chronicles of Samuel, the seer. We call that First and Second Samuel. There's also stories that are written of David that we don't have, as it goes on, it says, and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So there's additional stories, or maybe the same ones uh, of David's life. We don't have those particular books to refer to. Anyway, it goes on, it says, with accounts of all his rule and his might, and of the circumstances that came upon him, and upon Israel, and upon all the kingdoms of the country. And so, First Chronicles, it was a book though it mentions a lot of different people, it was a book primarily focused on King David and his life. As we move into Second Chronicles, what we're going to discover is now it's going to start following Solomon, and then it'll start following Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kings that replaced Solomon, and then it'll go on from there. So we'll move a lot more quickly through Second uh, Chronicles when we come to that, because we're looking at a whole bunch of characters and not just David. But David was the focus of First Chronicles here. And David lived a life that at the end of his life he could say I've lived my life to seek the Lord and I invite you to live the same type of life. How awesome. Well, God's been faithful. We finished the book of 1 Chronicles. Isn't that exciting? Yay, alright. Yeah. Say who? Uh? 
a shout, and they, or we can go back and do it again if you want, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, it was good. God's been so faithful, hasn't he? Here, yeah, I know. We, we've made our way. There you go. Amen. You've been waiting for that one. But how fun. You know, it is so good to be able to trust the word of God, to know that God speaks through his word, and that we can come. We don't have to be sort of leery. I don't know if this is going to be true or not. We can trust that the word is true. And to make our way verse by verse through this particular book, uh, next week when we come together, we're going to have a report from the guys from Belize and gals from Belize. Kevin Barber will be teaching us as well from the word. Uh, and then the following week, we're going to do communion. We're going to spend the whole morning uh, worship and communion. We'll have a, a teaching. I'll give a teaching on the idea of communion. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that between our books. And then we'll pick up again after that, shortly after that, in Second Chronicles. And we'll finish that book up before we move to the New Testament on Sunday morning. So looking forward to what God is doing. God's been faithful. Uh, why don't we go before the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we've, we're grateful so much for the word of God. We thank you for this book of First Chronicles. So we thank you for the example of King David. Lord, as much as we hate to see, Lord, uh, these areas of sin in his life, honestly, Lord, it is, it's somewhat encouraging to know that though we may fall, though we may stumble, that nonetheless we can still have that restoring relationship, restored relationship with you. Lord, that we could still be a people that are a man or a woman after God's own heart. Lord, and like the prodigal, we can just return. Sort of in our humility. And Lord, that like the prodigal's father, there you stand with arms open wide, ready to give us the fatted calf and throw a feast and Lord, that fellowship is restored. Father, we thank you for the pattern of David's life, a man who sought you first and then service came from that. And Father, we pray that as individuals and as a church, Lord, that would be the pattern of our walk with you. Father, we pray that we would be a people that are driven to run hard after you. Lord, not to be satisfied with good enough, with complacency, with compromise. Lord, but to diligently seek you. For when we diligently seek you, then you will be found. Burden our hearts with a greater desire for you. Cause us to be strong and courageous and not dismayed by the task that is before us. Lord, let your kingdom reign within our hearts. That your will be done in our lives. The same exact way in heaven. Lord, that that would be done here upon the earth in the sphere of influence for which we live. Lord, we love you. We're incredibly grateful that you called us to yourself. And Father, today we also pray for those that may at this point not yet know you. But there's a knowledge about you, but their hearts have not yet gotten a hold of you as their Savior. Lord, we ask that this morning that you might open up their hearts to believe. Lord, you would remove the blinders, so to speak, as they kneel there at the foot of the cross and they look upon the Savior. Lord, that within their hearts would resonate the truth that that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And He hangs there, or He hung there, in my stead. give those individuals to you. Do a work within our heart, their hearts. Do a work within all of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.